my love of a really good ingredient and my love of the joy of working busy services and the buzz of it. You know, you're tired and it's, you know, it's big work, but I'm just like, geez, I still love this. The joy of cooking, I still get a buzz out of that. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. There are some that choose a life in hospitality and there are others for whom hospitality chooses them. Growing up in a family-run hospitality business with family members on the pans, front of house or running establishments. For Nikki Rima, the art of hospitality is innate. Growing up in a family who earned a crust in the hospitality sector, the lure to carve out her own career was so strong, it's been almost like second nature. Nikki, is a career in hospitality like second nature for you? Yeah, it was it. Well, I definitely was one that grew up in the industry as far as from a from a baby. Dad was a hotel manager. There's photos of me sitting on bags of laundry linen at a, you know, like a <laughs> motel, not a hotel, a motel. Um, so it was kind of second nature to me, you know, being in a kitchen, being in a hospitality environment, whether it be, you know, finding dad in the bar, you know, time for time to go to dinner, dad, come on, you know, that kind of thing. Or, you know, uh, my mum was in the industry for a short time as well, but I actually didn't want to be a chef when I was a kid. I decided I was really good at science and maths and decided I'd be an engineer when I finished high school mm. And got into engineering at Melbourne Uni and quickly decided, well, I hate this. So, and it was quite <laughs> funny because it was my dad who said, no, it was my mum, sorry. My mum said, well, you really love hospitality. Have you thought about it? And I remember, oh, well, I'll do a little, you know, stint in the kitchen and help out and loved it immediately. And I was 22 years old, started an apprenticeship in one of the hotels that not, not that my dad was the boss there. I went to another one within the company and uh, never looked back, you know, just just felt, felt like I'd found my calling, which was really unusual, but, you know, to fall into it and never look back like that. So what, I'm 50 now and I'm still loving it. Absolutely love it. Well, you mentioned that you did a stint in the kitchen. Was, was food of interest to you prior to that? Had you, had you cooked it in the family home? A little, a little bit. We were one of those families that because we did live in a hotel, there was an awful lot of room service. Like literally, you know, dad would order room service or mum would order room service for dinner because the managers of the hotels, we're talking the 70s, you know, like um, early 80s, mid 70s, early 80s was the, you know, I was living in the um, Darwin Travelodge or a Townsville Travelodge. We lived all over the place. So, so you know, we actually lived at the Melbourne Airport Travelodge for three years, which is now known as the Holiday Inn at the Melbourne Airport and has been a central uh, here in Melbourne with all of coronavirus and our most recent outbreaks. Every time I look at the screen, I'm like, that's my old house. I lived there <laughs> for three years. Um, but the funny thing was, I guess because of all of that, it made me, I know this might sound quite, strange but I was like oh I'm so sick of hotel food as a kid 
quite finally so and I decided I really wanted to teach myself to cook things so one of the first things I did was grab a woman's weekly cookbook and I remember attempting to do beef and black bean sauce when I was about 15 and thinking this will be amazing it was it was a debacle but it made me I just loved recipes I really loved that idea of reading a recipe finding the ingredients and making something cooking something and that kind of was where my first love of cooking started was that the process of a recipe and following that and doing that so it was quite strange but yeah and then um, I slowly sort of you know started to really look at ingredients and how could I you know how did it work in the recipe what to do and and then I started cooking in a hotel, you know. My first year was first year apprentice at um, – it was the Park Royal on St Kilda Road. And I just loved the – I loved the style of the cooking then. It was it was still very much a hotel where you had an executive chef. There were three sous chefs. You know, there were teams of cooking. You know, I worked on the entremetier section, so I was doing hot garnishes and cold. It was very European, you know. So I really enjoyed that sort of like this is what a kitchen is all about, you know. And quickly sort of thought to myself, all right, this has been really interesting. I'm really loving this, but I think I want to go and work now for a, a restaurant. I want to be in the best that I could be. And Stephanie Alexander's restaurant was, you know, one of the pinnacle restaurants at the time. We had Mietta's, we had Stephanie Alexander's restaurant, Stephanie's in Hawthorne. And I remember Stephanie was speaking at uh, William Angles College or William Angles Institute, I think it's now called. And uh, I went along and spoke and took along – one of her cookbooks uh, wasn't – obviously, she hadn't written The Cook's Companion yet, you know, the big orange Bible, but she had another book, um, Stephanie's Australia, you know, it was one of her very first books. And I remember taking it along and saying, well, oh, would you sign this and sort of asking were there any jobs? And she sort of said, I'm always looking for good chefs, you know, so send me a little message and if something's available, you know, we'll see what happens. And I sent, I, I sent my – resume in which was tiny you know I was like oh my god she's never even gonna look at this but one of my trade school teachers had worked for her and put in a good word and uh, I got a job with her out there so I remember going to the head chef of at the hotel saying I know this is short notice but I've I've got an opportunity to do a trial and if I get the job I'm going <laughs> you know, like, and he was great he he he, he really understood that I was this passion in me was growing, you know, I'd been cooking for a year and I was like, no, no, I, I want more of this. So I went for the trial and I can still remember walking into the back, back door at Stephanie's in Hawthorne and just walking through the kitchen and there, you know, there was laughter and noise and, you know, one, one of the chefs wasn't even wearing a chef's uniform. She was wearing like um, overalls, and but she was at the big stock pot, you know, and and I then I walked up and Stephanie was standing there peeling kipfler potatoes. She just that I can still I can as I'm telling you I can still see it all, you know, like she was peeling wow. these potatoes and making up this salad, and she's like, righto, come on, come over here, you're going to be doing this with me tonight. And at the end of the night, she said to me, all right, when do you want to start? And I was like, tomorrow. <laughs> I was so excited. <laughs> it was that moment where you just went. You know, you have those moments in your life where you go, no, this is where I'm meant to be. This this is the right decision, you know, and I 
it was seven years or so I worked for her. I mean, not just at Stephanie's. We went on to open up Richmond Hill Cafe and Larder. Um, and that was another whirlwind exciting time of my life. That was – I went from, you know, being – I sped up and finished my apprenticeship quickly. And admittedly, I'd started older. You know, I started at 22. So instead of doing back then, it was a four-year apprenticeship. I managed to get it done, I think, in two and a half years or something. You know, it was, I can't remember entirely. But because I'd been at university, you know, it was different times back then. You could get, you could pass through a lot of things very quickly, you know. And I remember thinking to myself that, I went from being an apprentice to qualified chef. I think I was like qualified for maybe a year working at Stephanie's when she turned to me and said, I'm going to open up this little cafe on Bridge Road and we're going to put a cheese shop in it. It's kind of based on, you know, what happens in Paris and, you know, there's always a little cafe and there's a little shop in there that sells cheese and bread and no one in Melbourne's going to get it. We're not going to be busy. I can't imagine anyone's going to come like she honestly thought that and I've got a friend of mine his name's Will Will start he's going to do the cheese with us um but yeah do you want to be the head chef and I was like um okay yes she said because it's not gonna be that hard you know and I was like yeah sure so she took myself and another young chef that it was working um at Stephanie's too his name was Justin Dowd and he was to be my sous chef and it was myself, him, and two others, two other young, well, two girls happened to be. And, you know, off we went to Bridge Road and, you know, like I was running a kitchen. Admittedly, it was Stephanie's menu. I wasn't having to write a menu or anything like that. But I was, you know, in charge. <laughs> and I, and I, it was like a duck to water. I loved it. The, the running of the kitchen was not stressful to me. The, the buzz, the excitement, the ordering, the getting things done, I loved it. And we were crazy busy. And it was just that. I remember Stephanie was like, I don't want to work here. I still want to be able to be at Stephanie's in Hawthorne. I, I just want to help you out to get it up and running because, you know, we're just going to do really simple things. But we were doing like breakfast, lunch and dinner seven days a week and – we were doing things like labna and no one had heard of labna. We were hanging yogurt and roasting vegetables and serving it with labna. We were making apple tarts and roasting chickens every day for, you know, doing things that people just hadn't heard of. This is 1997, 96, 97. And, you know, serving cheese from the cheese room, we were, you know, and, um, I remember she got hold of some rock for and no one had seen that, you know. So, you know, it was just amazing and it didn't stop. It was crazy. I remember just thinking, I don't think I can remember those four years of my life that much anymore because we were just working so much. But we never complained. Like we loved it. You know, it was we were learning things and doing things that no one had done. And now all of that kind of, that style of dining, um, you know, that whole concept of cheese being so focal on a menu and it's so focal in our dining now, even at home in Melbourne, I feel like that little place helped start all of that. How important was that as a foundation for what you now do as a chef? Oh, I'm pretty sure that is the one big block that started it all for me as far as my love of all things European food style, uh, my love of a really good ingredient and not, I hate to say it, not dicking around with it too much, <laughs> you know, and, and my love of 
camaraderie in a kitchen and the joy of working busy services. You know, I still, we, we literally just finished last week of work and it was three really busy nights in a row and the buzz of it, you know, you're tired and it's, you know, it's big work, but I'm just like, geez, I still love this. You know, I, I, the joy of cooking, I still get a buzz out of that. But I think, you know, dealing with really good ingredients was probably the most important thing that I always wanted to do. I never wanted to work somewhere where they said, look, we, we you can't afford the good stuff. You can't afford to get farmers' ingredients. You have to get, you know, the stuff that comes from big bulk thousands of heads of cattle and pork and it's cuts of meat that, you know, you have to try and fix to make it edible, all of that kind of style of cooking. I, you know, I, I wanted to always be able to know my farmer, know my, you know, the guy who brings the milk. I wanted to always know the people involved and I've never, I, I've never not done that. Mm. You went on to do uh, Mecca and uh, Mecca Bar with Kath uh, Claringbold and that's also where you met Adam Cash who you ended up having a business with as well. T- tell us about that period of time and the development of your style of cooking. Yeah, I think for me, you know, I'd spend so much time, obviously, you know, a lot of French food dabbling into the Italian and, you know, European things like Spanish and whatnot with Stephanie. But I decided I needed, I love food so much, and I, but I really wanted to learn something new. And through a couple of little mishaps, like I remember leaving Stephanie's and I was going to be working at a cooking school or something and it all fell through. And um, I didn't leave Stephanie's badly. I left Stephanie's going, you've taught me so much. Now I need to take another step, you know. And I went off to try and do that project and it didn't happen. So then I was like, well, I, you know, I've got to get myself back into a kitchen really quickly. And I remember hearing of, I, I dined at Mecca which was at South Bank, you know, and for a long few times. And I remember hearing through my housemate, um, who is a girl called Nat Paul, who has Beatrix here in Melbourne now. She does amazing cakes. That was great living with a girl who loves making desserts, I can tell you. Um, There was always uh, creme catalan custards in our fridge. It was great. Um, (laughs) But she said, hey, I think, you know, Kath, Kath Clarenbold's opening a new bar, a new restaurant going to be called Mecca Bar. It's going to be a casual version of Mecca. You would probably be perfect for that. And I was like, yeah, but I don't know. I have never cooked any kind of Moroccan or Turkish or Lebanese or anything like that. She's like, we're just going to have a chat to her. So she, I did. And I remember, you know, a chat ended up being many drinks at a local little bar. And by the end of it, I think we were best mates almost. And uh, she said, well, come and do it come and do a little stint at Mecca whilst we're still building Mecca Bar. It should only take about another six weeks. Well, of course, that whole area of Melbourne was being developed. I remember going down to see where Mecca Bar would be and we were literally looking at a slab of concrete over water and I'm like, this is going to be longer than six weeks. And I remember working at Mecca for nine months before Mecca Bar was finally built and opened. And... I really love, again, I fell in love with this, you know, the flavours that Kath 
was doing and and how she cooked and another woman who just loves really good flavors and you know very straightforward techniques in her cooking but again accentuating whether it be um making sure that you know you the sumac has the right levels and flavors the coriander is used correctly um you know you would use things like baharat and um all these different spices that we were getting mm. through a couple of guys who were bringing things over from uh, morocco so you know i really learned how to use spices in my cooking and when mecca bar opened we had a turkish pizza we had a whole section of Turkish pizzas. We had a pizza oven put in. We were doing all these, you know, like shish kebabs things and served with rice pilafs. And it was just great. It was just the food, the flavour was just stunning, you know, really great things I learned to cook. And um, the young manager they hired, he'd been working at places like Gin Palace. So his background was more bars and things like that, but he really wanted to get into the restaurant scene. And I remember we met and we just hit it off as mates straight away. You know, it was sort of like we had a very similar attitude towards hospitality in that, you know, we liked to be givers, you know, Mm -hmm. give people what they want, give them lots of food, give them, you know, a great experience. And um, we we just had so much fun opening it up. And we, we both had a real love of European food. You know, we really, we come from families that traveled a bit, you know, so we, my dad was, um, he's Austrian by birth. He's Australian now, but so as a kid, you know, traveling back to Europe a lot. So, you know, and eating in overseas countries, my, a lot of it was European, whether it be in Austria or France or, or even Germany. So, and Adam's family had also traveled a lot. So, you know, just as friends, we always talked about European styles of venues, you know, that classic little bistro that when you went there, you felt like it'd been there forever. You know, one of our favorite places to have a late night dinner here in Melbourne is Francois. And the fact that, you know, the menu doesn't necessarily change, but you know, you, you know what you get. It's that comfort of a really good experience. And over the years of working together at Mecca Bar and, you know, just being friends, we said, we want to open a restaurant together. We think we would we'd do this really well, but we both knew that we just couldn't drop everything and do it straight away. Neither one of us had money. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> you know, like we knew we had to, and we both had to grow our careers a little bit more, you know, at that, Right up until Mecca Bar, I'd pretty much been a head chef that was always cooking somebody else's food. You know, it was Kath's menu, it was Stephanie's menu. And and I was, I guess by this point, I was probably mid-30s, early 30s. And uh, I thought, you know, I've got to start to try and do things for myself and put my menus, you know, out there. And I'd always often been having ideas and putting things together but hadn't done them. And And – an opportunity came along that I never thought I'd get, and that was to be the head chef at Langton's here in Melbourne, which is now Chaconi's in Flinders Lane. And I remember I applied for the job thinking to myself, oh, there's no way I'm going to get this, but I, I just want to try and apply, apply for a role like that as, as an experience as to how to you know apply for a big job. Um, I mean, they'd had Philippe Michel as their chef, Jeremy Strode as the second head chef, and the third head chef, uh, I've forgotten his name, but again, it was a, a man of note, you know. And um, I put my application in and 
the manager called me and said, well, we still like, we'd like to have an interview with you. I was like, yes, you know, I was so nervous and went in and um, long story short, I got the job and I was astounded, you know, like I thought, oh my God. And then I went, oh my God, I've got the job, you know, like, holy crap, you know, this, this place has a good reputation, you know, it, it's, it already had a hat or two. I think that was back in the days when there were five chef hats, you know, like it was a very different system. And I remember um, going into the kitchen and it was a sunken kitchen. It was all brass and, you know, there was the rotisserie for the chickens. There was still these gorgeous copper pots still hadn't been opened. Some of them were brand new in storage, ready as backup. You know, I hadn't seen anything like that. I was terrified. And, uh, but I just went, I can do this. I know I've got the skills. I just have to focus. Uh, got hold of some young chefs who'd worked with me, at, you know, whether it be at Mecca Bar and at Richmond Hill Cafe and Larder and said, would you come and work with me? And they were like, absolutely. So, you know, I felt like we were a little bit of a band of ragamuffins in the kitchen. We weren't <laughs> like you know, the Philippe Michel tea, you know, but we looked apart. We had those tall chef toques on, you know, we had to all wear and, um, and it was hard, you know, it was a few people kind of went, mm, we don't know who you are and mm, we're not sure about your food. And I remember I had one review and I was pretty heartbroken by it. I think I can't remember who wrote the review, but one of the comments was mm, not sure about this person being at that kind of place. And, but I, pushed on and wow. it maintained its level of, you know, it wasn't probably at its peak as when it was when it opened with Philippe, but people started to get to know who I was. And I started to make even more connections with the rest of the, you know, Melbourne hospitality community. And I, I was gaining my confidence as a chef. And uh, then unfortunately the owners of, of it decided, and that was Stuart Langton um, came up to me and said, you know, We've loved you here. I, I think it was three years, maybe two, three years that I was there. But he said, well, look, we've just decided we just don't want to own a restaurant anymore. And he was lovely. He was charming. He said, you know, where do you want to go in the world? I said, what do you mean? He goes, where, where would you like to go on a holiday? I was like, ah, sure. He's going, all right, wherever you want to go, we'll pay for it. I'm like, wow. okay. <laughs> it was the nicest way that I've ever been told you're losing your job ever. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and it was bizarre. And that night, the night of close, it was like almost our second night, last night or something like that. There was a gentleman dining um, and you, it was an open kitchen. You could really sort of see into the kitchen and he was American and he came up to me and said, oh, you know, I really love your food. I've been here a few times now in the last month. And to be honest, I hadn't noticed. It was busy, you know, and because everyone had heard that Langton's was closing. So, of course, you know, it was busy. And... Um, he said to me, look, I own a couple of restaurants in Hong Kong. I'd love for you to come and work for me. And I remember thinking, oh, that's a bit ridiculous. I couldn't go to Hong Kong. And then I thought to myself, maybe I'll just call him and see if he's for real. And within a week, I was on a plane to Hong Kong to have a look all, <laughs> you know, all on him. He just said, come on over. And I said to him, look, I'm going on a holiday to Italy, courtesy of my employer. Um, <laughs> just And... I guess I couldn't start with you for maybe until I've done that. He's like, yep, fine. And I said, and, you know, I thought, oh, I, you know, I can't afford to just mine. He goes, no, no, we'll, we'll put you up. We'll, you know, we'll pay for your apartment to live in. Um, and I was made the head chef of a place called H1 in Hong Kong. 
Um, and I had a team of like 30 chefs under me. Wow. And I was 37, 37 at the time. And I remember thinking, you know, it was an adventure. You know, I was going, I was so excited. But I worked six days a week. You know, you only have one day off there pretty much. You're doing six doubles. Awesome team of young men that I worked with. There was maybe out of the 30, there were two other girls and they worked on the pastry section. So it was a very male-dominated kitchen. But really you know, beautiful people, like great people. And I absolutely loved it, but I worked my ass off and I got to the point where I thought, "Mm, I think I'm making somebody else really wealthy. And if I want to get an opportunity to open my own restaurant, it's not going to happen here in Hong Kong. I think I need to get back to Melbourne. I was missing my family too. And I, you know, I was sort of, I was on my own. And even though people were coming to visit me, I had lots of friends come and stay I was literally working and I'd say, all right, meet me after work, you know, go on an adventure, go check out Hong Kong. This is where you need to go and I'll meet you at 10 o'clock when I'm finished or 11 o'clock, you know. So it was a kind of, I mean, it's a great town. You can you can be drinking and eating until four in the morning, you know. There's no issues there. But it wasn't a lifestyle I wanted to sustain forever. So I came back and I ended up working at – for a very short time at Bottega in the city. Um, I had a little bit of, it was, there started to be a little bit of hop skipping and jumping there just for a little while in my career. I sort of did Bottega and then I did a place called Trunk, got help, you know, was part of the team. It was the head chef there to open up. And, and all the time I was doing all of this, I was still in the back of my mind wanting to open my own restaurant with Adam because we had, we were still best friends and we're really thinking about it. And he was, meanwhile, his career was climbing a little bit. He was working at um, with Teague Essard at Essard's and then he was also, he became the manager at uh, Cutler & Co when it opened. He was the first manager as part of the opening crew there. So his career was climbing. Mine was climbing and we both knew that at some point we would be able to do something. Um but we were still trying to work out when and how and where. And then I became the head chef um, for Karen Martini at the Melbourne Wine Room. And that was really, for me, cementing my my want for something of my own because I was seeing, you know, he was a group of similar age, similar thinking people running their own business. And I thought, no, I can do this, but I have to do this soon. And we were lucky enough that we had um, – some financial backers who were really willing to work with us and, you know, they'd seen our business plans that we'd been working on and, you know, they were great people who also wanted to, you know, give us a step up. And we found this building. We found where Union Dining was going to be. And admittedly it was quite big and I kind of went to, it was a huge Greek restaurant before, you know, and, but it had been vacant for like 10 years. The guy who owned it just stopped doing anything in it. I remember when we checked out the kitchen, there was still oil in the fryer, but it was black. Oh, wow. It was like, it was like tar. And I just said to Adam, there's, there's a bit of work involved here. Um, we, I mean, we looked at the building and walked off thinking, oh, well, we'll never get this, you know. And next minute our business partner rang us and said, um, we just bought that building. And we went, what? It's like, well, get, they said, well, get your menu written. This is happening. (laughs) So, you know, we were like, okay. Um, And, and we just, that was back in, I guess, 2000 and 
I'm trying to think, maybe 10 or 11, 2010. Yeah, we had the restaurant for six years and it closed in 2017. Some of the hardest, some of the best times of my life there. It was such the buzz of opening your own venue. Like there were some good tears. There were some scary tears and, you know, but I met great young chefs that I helped train up, you know, my love of training young people, you know, I kept that going. Um, you know, I really, we just, we had a guy who started with us on the first day, did his entire apprenticeship with us for four years. I had a young man start with us when he first started was a casual chef. He was from China and he ended up being, you know, one of my sous chefs um, before we, you know, within that six year period and went on to work for, um, uh, oh, I forget his name now, but someone quite well known overseas somewhere. Um, so, you know, like <laughs> it was, it was great. I really, we really loved it. And, you know, and Adam and I still maintained our friendship. You know, we, there were some tough times you know, as far as, you know, it's pressure, it's scary. It's have we got enough money in the bank account to pay, you know, rent. I mean, even though our business partners owned the building, we still paid a rent. You know, we kind of, we wanted to make sure that we ran the business properly and you know effectively and you know and paying people every, all on time and paying their superannuation and paying the gs you know like i think a lot of people going into a business don't realize that there's a lot involved and you know i remember going to you know doing little online business courses through um the state of victoria you know just learning all of that before we opened and that's one big thing I've always said to other young people. It's like, oh, I want to open my business. It's like, well, you need to study. <laughs> you can't just say, I know how to cook. I can open up a restaurant. You need to know all the other shit, you know, like the stuff that's not the fun stuff um, because ultimately that's what keeps you up at night when you're owning your own business is making sure you've got all those, you know, eggs in the basket, so to speak. Union dining uh, became – the real heartbeat of Richmond and a really, uh, really influential restaurant for that period of time that you had it. Can you tell us about the food that you were cooking there and how you found your, your identity as a chef? And is there any dishes that you remember from that time that sort of speak of the way you were cooking? Yeah, I think I really did come back to my love of all things European. Um, I, and very much French, but very much rustic sort of southern Western France. Um, and I guess the big thing that really, and like you said, we were a little bit of a heart of Richmond there, was that classic, a cassoulet. I remember doing cassoulet nights and at little dinner parties with Adam where I, you know, use duck legs. I do like a um, Toulouse-style cassoulet, which basically means, you know, it's, there's different regions of France and they all can do slightly different versions, but there'll often be Toulouse sausage, there'll be Kaiserfleisch and pork shoulder and pork belly and, you know, and comfy duck and beans and, and Riesling, you know, putting in all of these different things. But I would use the skin of the pork bellies to line my little, you know, cassoulet dish and then put everything in and bake it slowly. And I wanted to bring that to union dining, you know, that all those different ingredients, all slow cooked and hearty food, food that when you ate it, you went, oh, that's good. You know, that that was always my desire to be like that. And, you know, we would do these cassoulet nights every every winter and it became one of those 
you've got to go to the Castellay night. And then we would, from that, we kind of would often do it um, as a special now and then, you know, and it'd be like, oh my God, I see that you've got, and that's where Instagram was great. Like, you know, we were a restaurant that opened up as social media was opening up. And, you know, we could put pictures up to say, we're doing this. And people would be like, yeah, we're coming because we've seen that. And, you know, like that was a great tool that we'd never had before, you know. So um, that style of cooking, you know, I like to say it's cooking from the heart almost, um, became a bit of a signature for me, you know, and a bit of a she, I would try to always make sure I cooked generously, um, sometimes to my detriment, you know, I'd look at my food costs and go, mm, okay, probably too generous that time. So let's be careful. But um, I do like to make sure that, you know, you get a generous portion. You mentioned the cassoulet and the amazing um, pork elements in that. And you're renowned as one of Australia's best pork chefs, um, the things that you can do with pork. Um, t- tell us a bit about your love of cooking with that and some of the things that you like to do. Yeah, it's funny. I was, I think every menu I've ever written um, has always got a pork dish on it. You know, my friends sort of say, you know, your epitaph on you, you know, we'll, we'll put you in the ground and there'll be a sign that says she cooked good pork. Um, I'd be very proud of that. <laughs> I don't know whether it's because, you know, my dad's background, but, um, you know, I was just sort of, if I had to write down all my favourite pork dishes that I cook, cassoulet is definitely top, even though people would say, yeah, but it's not necessarily all about pork. But pork's at mm. the heart of it, you know, like you you need to have really good pork belly, really good pork shoulder in there. And um, that's probably one of them. But my other my very favourite thing to cook is a really good Italian-style porchetta, you know, getting a big loin and belly and filling that with roasted garlic paste and oregano and, you know, I even line thinly sliced pancetta inside my porchetta, roll that up and roast it, you know. So they're probably the two that really always come to mind when I think of favourite pork dishes. But I always think, you know, like pork and fennel, like I feel like that that's a marriage in heaven. I know everyone says garlic, but I'm like fennel and pork is just like, they're just the best. Like if I do a cotoletta, you know, like a crumbed pork ribeye, I always put like a shaved fennel salad with it or I might do some confit fennel on the side, you know, like I just think that aniseedy flavour from the fennel with the fat of the pork and the sweetness of the pork is just the best, you know. My mouth's getting a bit, um, I'm getting, getting hungry thinking about this. <laughs> yeah, me too. You mentioned that you love that connection with producers and how important that is. Have you had uh, connections and uh, worked with uh, pig farmers to make sure that you're getting the sort of pork that you need? Uh, yes, absolutely. Judy Crow, she is my queen of Western Plains pork. Uh, I think I've been getting pork for her for from 20 years now. I reckon as long as, as long as she's had the farm. I remember she came to see me at Langton's and said, you know, my name's Judy. I've got a pork farm. I've started supplying a couple of other chefs. You know, she was um, giving pork to Daniel Shelbert, who at that point was the head chef at um, Bottega. And, uh, and Daniel knew me because we went to trade school together. And he had said to Judy, you should go and talk to Nikki because I know she loves pork. And I haven't got pork from anybody else since. I've tried some delicious porks. Don't get me wrong. I've tried this stunning Berkshire pork farmers, you know, really heritage pig farmers all over Victoria. There's people doing great things. But I guess because 
I just loved what the product that Judy and her husband and what they're doing at their farm. Like it's been consistent for so long. I've never had an issue. I, you know, from getting their suckling pig to their pork belly, to the shoulder, neck, pig's ears, you name it, trotters. I've, I've, I think I've used everything. And I always come back to a really good pork rack or loin or the belly, you know, like those are probably my go-to cuts, you know, the pork belly, um, the pork rack, you know, that I can do pork ribeyes from and then the loin and the belly together to do a pork head. They're probably my most favourite. Um, and, yeah, I, I will always feature that uh, that on a menu, the I think it's a cut that, you know, it had some bad rap in the 70s. I think everybody remembers going to a, an Australian pub and eating the most, you know, dried out old roasted pork, you know, with applesauce. And I think there were some bad things happening there. But then when we, you know, as as a country, we got our heads around what our European settlers had been doing for quite some time and we realised that, hang on a minute, we're doing it wrong, you know, like we should be doing, you know, more braised dishes, more roasting things with more fat in it to keep it, you know, moist and juicy and, you know, all those different styles of cooking. I mean, even Spanish ways of cooking pork belly and, you know, and a French pork belly riettes, you know, like I love making riettes with belly. There's... There's so many things you can do with that cut, with, with that product that are really delicious, you know, and I found that I was helping people get a love of pork again. You know, I was getting people coming up to me saying, oh, I haven't had good pork like that for years, you know. So I think that's great when you can do that as a chef, you know. These days you're the head chef of a wonderful place in South Melbourne called Bellotta Wine Bar. Uh, tell us about what you're doing there and and um, and a bit about the food. Yeah, I it was funny we closed poor, uh, we we closed Union Dining and that was heartbreaking and also you know we did it the right way we we gave ourselves time to wrap it up so to speak because you know we just saw things were changing within our business model that meant that we would get to a point where it was not sustainable and I didn't ever want to be in a position where I couldn't sustain a business. Um, but I didn't want to stop cooking. I, I still loved what I did as a, as at the core, but I took some time off. I took about three months off and I remember thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to have to start to look for something, see if what's out there. And I got a message, a text message um, from Michael McNamara, who's one of the owners of uh, the Prince Wine Store. And it literally is like, hi, you don't know me, but I know you. <laughs> and, you know, I dined at Union Dining. I love your food. Um, we own Belotta Wine Bar. Wondering if you'd want to have a chat. And, you know, I love the have a chat. I, I don't think I've ever, you know, I've, as I said, I went to one official interview and it was for Langton's. Everything else in my life has been like, let's have a chat. <laughs> so I went and had a chat and had lunch with him at Belotta and I looked around and went, I really like this place. This is exactly what I want to do. I, I want to do something that's not huge, not as in like a 120-seater. I want to do something that's more intimate, um, loves European food and loves matching food with wine because that was the other good thing I always had in my career was a love of a good glass of wine with a meal and how you make your meal work with that wine. And 
Bolotta was going to be like the perfect place for me for that. And I started there, it'll be this coming Easter. I'll, I'll have been there four years. And I it was funny, recently I was looking up all the different menus I've written for the, we do a lot of wine dinners. We do um, launches of a vintage, like every year we do our Grand Cru Champagne dinners where we look at each um, big champagne house and their current vintage. And, you know, these are expensive dinners for people who would like to enjoy those wines. So I need to make a menu that can match that, you know, so I'm looking at the weights of the wines and what I can do. And, you know, rosé champagne goes really, really well with pigeon, for example. So, you know, like I was, I'm getting to do things like that. And it's not just all about, okay, you know, you need to do a lobster or, or you know, a crayfish, I should say, or, you know, there's other things you can do with wine. And of course I get to do, things with pork you know like we we do a um like a uh, we do a little shoe farsi dish and so we match that with a riesling you know so there's all of that love of has come together at, at Bellotta for me and it's a place where it's like part of me goes oh, I wish I'd, I wish I'd opened up a business like this years ago because you know Prince Wine Store has this amazing, you know, ability to get wines from all over the world. And, you know, Michael McNamara, he, his love of Italian wine and my love of cooking Italian food, is, it really goes well together. We, we do dinners where we feature um, Barolo and, we, you know, we just look at wines from the Barolo region and I get to cook to go with that, you know, and it's such fun as a chef, you know. It really keeps my creativity alive. Not, uh, it's not just about running a kitchen there it's also about you know looking at what will go with the wine I've, i'm li- literally just written a menu um we're looking at a couple of burgundy houses um we're doing some white burgundy and red burgundy and so i'm getting some venice in to go with the red burgundy and i'm you know doing some crayfish with the white so you know it's all of that which i really love and getting to show other young chefs about that we're a tiny little kitchen though we are tiny but um it's, I always say it's a little kitchen with a big heart. You've uh, worked in so many venues and been such an influence in, in Melbourne. What, what do you love about Melbourne's food scene and, and uh, what are you expecting to see in the next couple of years from it? Yeah, I think Melbourne's – the biggest thing I always think about Melbourne's hospitality scene is our generosity. I think we are a city that loves to give, you know, I, I know I talk about myself being someone who likes to give, but I also feel like if you looked at us as a city and how we are with hospitality, we are generous. You know, we we have such a good mix of food and wine and, you know, the cocktail scene, the cafe scene and, you know, the food shop scene. You know, there's so much there and it's just this generous feeling of lots to pick from. And I don't think that's ever going to change. You know, I still get a kick out of going – oh, I want to go and try that restaurant because they're doing, you know, North African food or, you know, oh, I really have to try his food because he's from Lebanon and, you know, I love what they do, you know. So there's so much to see and pick and we're very generous and we, I feel like we, we do that middle range, not too expensive belt of dining and drinking really, really well. You know, we've got our high-end gorgeous venues as well and which I love to go to, but that middle range bracket, I feel like that that's the heart and soul of Melbourne dining and I want to see that keep getting stronger. You know, yes, we have had a big bump in the road with 2020, but I feel like even in the last couple of weeks in Melbourne, I just feel like 
we're getting back there. And what I love about Melbourne too is everyone that dines out, they love dining out. You know, they love eating and drinking. They love coming up to you and have a chat about that. They love to come up to you to say, you know, I was recently in Ballarat and I went looking for Western Plains pork or, you know, like or, or I was down the coast and I went looking for – I went to Port Arlington. I wanted to find the mussels and, you know, so I that hasn't changed for me in, what, 25-plus years of cooking and I think it's just going to keep getting stronger. Well – um, we've loved having you on the crackling to hear your story and I feel like we need to do an episode two. There's so much more that I think that you, uh, you've <laughs> got to tell us. Yeah, for I sure. I think we might have to catch up with you again <laughs> down the track, but uh, Nikki, we've loved having you on um, to have a chat and um, please keep in touch and we'll talk again soon. Uh, look, it has been my pleasure to talk all things food. It's one thing I will never get sick of. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thanks, Nikki. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.